Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. So as always, it's a delight to be back with you, and uh, we've also enjoyed connecting with Ebenezer through the online services over the last couple of years, so it's been a great blessing to us. Just as I start, I'd like to give a brief update on our work for some of you, uh, uh, updated news for others that don't know us, something of an orientation. So Teresa and I work with Power to Change at a place called the International Graduate School of Leadership. And uh, we've been there for 43 years, and uh, 43 years, two children, and five grandchildren later. And so we have our daughter, uh, Michelle, and her husband, Jim, with their five children in Papua New Guinea, uh, which is just above Australia, jungles of, uh, of that region. And then our son, Matthew, who's in the urban jungle of Vancouver, uh, where he works as a lawyer for the Department of Justice. But the question that we've been wrestling with over these many years is, for a world in need, how can we make the maximum impact? Not just contribute, but maximize what we can give. And so we believe that God has led us to the International Graduate School of Leadership, IGSL, in Manila, Philippines. So this is a graduate-level seminary uh, usually with about 200 students, and at any given time, about 20 different nationalities being represented there. So we get to build servant leaders uh, for the countries of the world. So our school is a seminary and more. The backdrop, of course, is in Asia, where many countries, there's very limited numbers of people who know Christ less than 1%, and even less than 1% who know of Christ, who have heard of him. So we get the privilege of working with these committed Christian leaders who come from these various countries from all over Asia. And I said, the majority of them are for a seminary, are full-time Christian workers, and they're going back into full-time Christian work. But as a leadership school, we also draw from people in the uniformed services of the Philippines. So um, armed forces, the equivalent of the RCMP, uh, jail management, and fire prevention, the fire services. And so these are line officers who are not trained, being trained as chaplains, but to serve uh, using their Christian convictions in their jobs in nation building. So this group of people gets gathered together in one place at IGSL, and it's a greenhouse of development, of growth. About half of them are from the Philippines, the other half are from these other 20 other countries. And then they study with us for two to three years. So it's an extended time that we get to build into their lives through one-on-one -on -one discipleship, through training, through the courses, and everything like that. And why the Philippines? Why do we pull them together to that site? Several reasons. First of all, it's very spiritually open. 
And so these foreigners who come in are able to have an effective ministry in the Philippines in their two to three years with us. Secondly, English is widely spoken. It's politically stable. It's cheaper to study there for them to train there than many other countries in Asia, or certainly much cheaper than bringing them back here to study. And then it's a place with diverse religions and cultures. So regardless of what group you're going to go and minister to back in your home country or the mission field, we can find some close equivalent that you can work with in your time in the Philippines. So our work is to build leaders for transformation. And over the years, we've worked in these three different spheres. We've worked among the faculty members and uh, staff. <clears throat> In January, Teresa uh, became the human resources coordinator for our school, and so she's been working very closely in developing the faculty. Both of us work among the students, strengthening them, <coughs> excuse me, and then working among the alumni as well. Over the last two years, I've done a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching with our alumni as they've been facing challenges with the pandemic and on. And so, on average, every second day, I was meeting with an alumni online in their various countries. And so, our people, as they graduate and go back to their home countries or to the mission fields, end up in a whole lot of different countries. And so, we have uh, a range of some of the countries that are represented here, from Mongolia at the top to the regions at the bottom, including Europe and so on. So, we have alumni who are serving in some 38 different countries. So they go and minister out there. And so we really appreciate the involvement of Ebenezer as a church over these many years as part of our ministry. And there's also a number of you as uh, individuals or as couples who've been involved in our support team as well, and we appreciate that. Our work is a team effort. All of our faculty do raise their support and so as we prepare to head back to the Philippines in two days, two weeks, and one day, we're continuing to look for people who are interested to hear more about our work. And so if you or if you know of someone who would be interested to hear more about what we do and open to considering the possibility of joining as a ministry partner, please talk to us about that. Or if you are interested in getting our uh, regular newsletters, give us your email address and we would be delighted to send that on to you. So with that, we turn to our topic for today, into the Ten Commandments, and we're moving to Exodus 2017, Encountering Covetousness. And uh, I was mentioning to someone before the service, this is the topic I selected. And uh, uh, so we are moving out of sequence, and so I appreciate the, the team, the leadership team of the church who allowed me to speak on this topic since this is when I was available. The word covetousness strikes us as an unusual word, right? You really, we don't use that very often in our vocabulary, right? I had to go and look it up to make sure I understood exactly what it meant. Although the word is not very evident in our vocabulary, we know the idea is very present. As we've been starting through this journey with the Ten Commandments, we've been looking at a series of foundational truths. 
Each commandment is revelatory. It reveals something about the character of God, the beauty of who he is, and the beauty of what he wants to see in us shine through our lives. It's confrontational in showing our character. It shines a light on the darkness that's there, the evil that is there. There's something that's instructional. It's charting a new course, a better way for us, for others, and for the work of God. There's a hope that comes through with it. And then most excitingly, there's a promise. As we think about being new covenant people, the Spirit of God being in work within us. So there's an assurance. This is something that God wants to produce in our lives. He is committed to deliver this reality as we yield to him. A lot of times with something like the Ten Commandments, it's something we've been familiar with for years and years and years since we were children. Perhaps some of us memorized them as uh, young people. But it's helpful to seek to approach God's word always with fresh eyes and attentive ears and see what we can see. And so in looking at this commandment, the 10th commandment, there's a couple things that stand out to us immediately. First of all, it starts with an extensive explanation. In contrast to a number of the other commands that are there in the middle, uh, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. So we're dealing with four or five words that summarize the whole commandment. Here, we're going to see 35 words that God felt he needed to give to us. So for a passage that shows an economy of words, suddenly there's an abundance at this spot. Secondly, this commandment deals with internal responses, not external. The previous commands have basically been looking at actions. If this action shows up, this is a very problematic thing. Here, the intent is, what is the intent? What is going on in the heart? There's a scene near the opening of A Few Good Men, the classic uh, courtroom uh, movie. Tom Cruise is a lawyer for the JAG, and the conversation takes place at a, a softball uh, a field, and it's between these two lawyers. And so uh, Tom Cruise, his client, has um, purchased a $10 bag of what he thought was marijuana and smoked it while he was on duty. It turned out that it wasn't marijuana, that it was oregano. And so as Tom Cruise is arguing with this other lawyer, he says, my client is a moron, but that is not against the law. God would say his intent was against the law, was against the truth. And here, with this 10th commandment, God is saying the heart, that's what we're looking at with this law. So, Let's look at Exodus 20:17, And again, it cascades out. Don't cover your neighbor's house, wife, male servant, female, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Again, God feels the need to unpack it for us. 
And it really reflects something of a 360 view of life, of whatever someone might see as they look around in their community. And I'm reminded of the famous words of Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs, where he says, we begin by coveting what we see daily. We begin by coveting what we see daily. So let's examine for a few minutes this area of wants and desires. Certainly not all of our wants and desires are bad, but certainly some of them might be. So what I'm going to present to you is a list of possible things that we might want, different features. And each of them is linked to a person who might be significant in our lives. All right? And this is not a trap. I'm not trying to trick you and, and jump on you and say, ha, got you. Uh, but I'm encouraging you to look at these um, as we go through them one at a time. Is this okay for you? Is there some problem that you see? Are there some warning lines here? Or is there something clearly that's problematic? So let's walk through them. What, it would, what would it be like for you if you could have an electronic device like your friend owns? How about a position, a job, a title of a coworker? A house like your neighbor? A car like that of your childhood classmate? How about a skill that you see in a colleague? And lastly, an opportunity afforded to your sibling. Someone has said about siblings, in our siblings we find our greatest friends and our most uh, uh, strongest enemies. Uh, So, in looking at that list, did anything stand out to you? Is there anything in terms of a feature that seemed problematic? Or did you notice some kind of pull on your heart when one of those individuals, one of those people of importance in our lives, were mentioned. When we're dealing with our wants and our desires, we're dealing with something that's a bit complex. So, in the New Testament, the words that mean to desire, to want, to long for are used, and they're used in a number of occasions in very positive ways, such as Luke 22:15. Jesus says, to his disciples, I so longed to be able to celebrate this Passover with you before I suffer. Literally, he says, I had a deep longing, I, I, I longed with a deep longing to have this event with you. In uh, 1 Timothy 3.1, the Apostle Paul talks about if anyone aspires to be an overseer, a leader, that's a noble thing, that's a good thing. So we see these words used in a very positive sense and and used of God, of what he does. These very same words are used on the other side as well of wicked things, to covet and to lust after. So perhaps the problem is not with desire, but it's with unhealthy desire or unholy desire. So when we're dealing with coveting, 
what we're dealing with is really discontented desire. Discontented desire. And specifically this word coveting, it's dealing with what has already been taken. It's already off the table. It's already with someone. And this idea is that we're trying to, to get it away from them. For many of us, we've seen children playing with toys, right? Two children, and they're playing happily. And then the first child looks over and sees the second child and the toy that the second child has. And what does the first child want? that second toy. Even though it might be a poorer toy than the one they've already got, maybe it's even broken, but suddenly there's this desire, this longing to take what has already been taken. So coveting, discontented desire. But as we dig down with this idea of discontented desire, we move across into something that's related. And this is not where it's off the table, but it's the idea that there's an unsatiable desire. And it focuses on the idea, I don't have it, I want it, and I will not rest until I have it. So as the uh, Rolling Stones sang in 1965, I don't get no satisfaction. There's no contentment, there's this obsession that's there, that's drawing us forward. And so today, as we move forward, I want to talk about these two areas. With that second one, this obsessive, uh, unsatiable desire, we see it in uh, Gone with the Wind, a scene called the turnip scene, where Scarlett O'Hare shakes her fist to heaven and says, as God is my witness, I will never be poor again. No settling for anything less. And this discontented desire can surface in our lives in many different ways, and it can come very quickly in surprising situations. John 21, 21. Peter, he sees, when he saw him, John, he asked Jesus, Lord, what about him? And remember the situation? Uh, uh, Jesus has just told Peter, you're going to die as a martyr. And so immediately he turns and says, what about this other guy? Now, do you think Peter is just being curious? The way Jesus responds seems to suggest there's more going on here, that either Peter has already crossed into discontented desire or he's on the borderline. Because Jesus says to him, what is that to you? You follow me. And remember the setting. Peter has just been graciously reaffirmed for ministry by God. One time, two time, and three time there uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And yet, he moves across into this area. Different people have different approaches to try to deal with this discontented desire. So three of them that are listed here. One, to give up on our desires. So good luck on that, right? We would need to be in a coma for that to work effectively. And then try not to think about it. But discontented desire can be very intrusive and also very resilient. And it can crawl into our lives slowly, but surely, 
or it can make a sudden and powerful appearance. Another approach, we can hope that it will just go away. So these three have the idea there's a minimal attention or something of an avoidance mindset. And that just doesn't work. As we look at how different groups have dealt with this, in Buddhism, they seek to end desire because desire leads to suffering. And so the approach is just chill. Try not to desire things. In contrast, biblical Christianity calls us to do something different. It calls us to let our desires be realigned by God as Christ bearers. He wants to cause our desires to be rebooted, to be reprogrammed, to be in line with what God wants. So how did we get here in this struggle to be contented? If we look at the storyline of the Bible, it helps us to see where we are. So we go back to Eden, a time where there was contentment with Adam and Eve, God walking in the garden with them. But in Eden, they wanted more, right? They rebelled, they began the rebel journey. And so if we gave an epic title for that section, it would be the, the Rebel is Born, or Birth of the Rebel. And that discontent continued on. Then, secondly, the journey without Jesus. I want more. So we see that story continue as we read through the Bible and we see the bad mistakes they make, bad decisions they make because of their discontent. And that becomes our story too, right? Our story without Christ. Discontentment, bad decisions that are made there. And then the exciting development. Now, as New Covenant members, this New Covenant journey where we see God at work within us, uh, we, you give me all I need as I walk with you. So as we're born again, God enables us through his spirit to reject independent rebelliousness. We have a new, a new capacity to embrace his will and pursue it. God works in us as we yield, as we cooperate, no longer following the rebel path. And so if we would give an epic title for this, it would be the return of the sons and daughters. The return of the sons and daughters. So what's so bad about discontented desire? What's the fallout from it? Someone has said covetousness is a respectable sin. It's not really picked on. It's not really seen as wicked or evil many times. But several things show the fallout that's there. It hurts the heart of God. He's grieved of the pain that he sees, the missed experience that we have when we don't walk with him, when we don't experience contentment as a fruit in our lives. And he's dissatisfied, he's disappointed because we fail to demonstrate this reality to others. Secondly, it hurts us. 
And as we move through this, we overlap with some of the vocabulary that Pastor Wes brought us to last week as he talked about Sabbath, as he talked about looking for those dopamine hits, the pursuit of, of pleasure as opposed to pursuing contentment. First, Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Verse 6 talks about this experience of godliness that comes with contentment. And there's an abundance in life that's experienced there. But then as we go to verse 9, it talks about these dangers. There's temptation. There's a snare. This obsessive, discontented desire leads to ruin. And the results in verse 10, wandering from God, wounding our lives, much pain, deep, deep wounds. And then thirdly, there's, it hurts our relationship with others. There's a poisoning that takes place there. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he talks about the disharmony that this produces between us and other people. He talks about conflicts and quarrels. Where does this come from? From your passions that battle within you. Internal battle with that intent, discontented desire. And then that battle is exported and manifests itself in our interaction with others, in the disharmony. We desire, don't have, we murder, we envy, we quarrel and we fight. We ask wrongly because we desire to spend it on our motives, pardon me, on our passions, our pleasures. Then in Romans 12, 15, it talks about rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. But if there's this discontented desire, there's a disconnection with people because we're locked in our covetousness, our obsessive desires. We can't really connect with them. We can't rejoice with them. We can't really weep with them. We're disconnected in that journey together with them. So covetousness can sur surface suddenly and in surprising ways. Recently, in the last several months through the pandemic, I realized a pattern in my life in my working with our alumni. And I would be uh, scanning emails, looking at social media, and I would see that one of our alumni had been given the opportunity to speak at a very prestigious location. And I would be wounded saying, why didn't they ask me? And so I would analyze my heart rationally and say, did I want to speak there? And as I would think about it, I'd say, no, not really. And then ego would raise its ugly head and say, but at least they could have asked me first. And then when I said no, then they could have gone on to the other person, huh? So see how twisted that concept is there? So, and then as I think about this logically, of course, we build into the lives of our alumni. Our goal is to raise up leadership for the church in Asia and beyond. And so the fact that they're getting selected is a good thing. This is proof of our labor and the labor of our team in, in seeing success in, in yielding fruit that's there. So how do we deal with this area of... of uh, discontentment, discontented desire. 
So some godly approaches. First of all, realize that our world is intent on craving and pursuing. A system that's committed to cons conspicu conspicuous consumption, conspicuous consumption, where it promotes purchasing beyond the need. So as we watch advertisements, it's seeking to promote this longing within us. So recognize that tendency will always be there in our society. And I've been noticing some of the terms that are used in advertisements. They talk about crave. They're encouraging us to crave, indulge ourselves. These concepts of over-the-top pleasure that we need to be seeking those out. Secondly, recognize that the, those seeds, the tendency to compare and covet, will always be there, always be there. So, like Peter, who had recently been reinstated and affirmed and reaffirmed again, still it can surface again. And a great caution is in our exposure to social media. This past week, a Canadian fitness star uh, Maddie Limeburner commented about the dangers of what is seen, what is posted. And she said, beware of what you see in pictures, videos, TikTok, and everything beyond. It shows snippets of life. It's perfectly constructed, but of course, it's not reality. And so I encourage you, as you think about approaching social media, it will be tempting. It will surface areas of discontentment in your heart. So I encourage you to think that through. Analyze, Lord, what is it that you're wanting to do in my heart even before we approach those, those uh, forms of communication? And then thirdly, this allowing God to mold our desires as we ask and work for him and accept what he gives us. Allow his spirit to work to transform our mindset and our response. And that's evident in the passage in Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart, his work to mold and craft us. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. See him working within our lives as he's the one who takes our desires and moves them and shifts them to be in alignment with him. One of my joys through the pandemic time is as I would see people being able to do things that I could not do because of the restrictions upon me, I was delighted to see how God was helping me to rejoice in the opportunities that they were having, even though it was not for me. So affirmed me in God's working in my life. And then number four, accept that life is not fair, but that God is good. And that almost sounds like disinformation or heresy because we want life to be fair, but it's not. But God is good. God is good. And then fifthly, accept that God will give us all that we need to walk with him. He gives all we need. Of course, one of the major temptation areas for us is that of finances because of how it opens up opportunities for us. Key area of temptation to be dissatisfied for obsessive desire to come in. And we have Hebrews 
where God's word sought to address it. Let your lives be free from the love of money, being satisfied with what you have. For he, God himself, has said, never will I leave you, never will I abandon you. And this quotation at the end is one of the most difficult passages to translate in the New Testament. And why? The reason is because it's purposefully redundant. <clears throat> it's literally excessive. In Greek, there are two different words for no. Uh, N-O. U and may. And in this short quotation, we have it used five times. Ooh, and may. And so, if we were to translate this more directly, we would have to come up with something like, never ever will I leave you. Never, no, never will I forsake you. This intentional redundancy there as God drives home his point. And as I think about this, I'm reminded of a situation years ago in the Philippines. Teresa and I were ministering at church and Teresa said, the pastor's wife has prepared a cup of coffee for you, and she's already added the sugar. So he tasted it, and it was incredibly sweet. And as I drank down the coffee, I found out why it was so sweet, because the bottom third of the cup was full of sugar. Super saturated solution. This was an area in the Philippines where they grow sugarcane. They eat everything excessively sweet. As a good hostess, she did not want me to be lacking in sweetness for my coffee. And with this passage, it is like God has done the same. He has supersaturated this passage. Never, ever will I leave you. Never, no, never will I abandon you. My presence is assured. His working is going to be powerful. I will work in your life to overcome any situation. He's saying, I've got this. Is there an area of your life where you need to hear him say that to you? I've got this. This is where, once again, we recognize that God is good and that he gives us absolutely everything that we need as Psalm 23 affirms, I will lack no good thing. So in moving forward, this intended journey with the Holy Spirit, what does he want of us? He wants us to yield to his spirit as new covenant believers. Pursue our desires and dreams with God coupled with a heart of contentment. Bible teacher John Piper talks about five uh, approaches or uh, progression of ideas in dealing with this process. First thing he talks about is recognizing we have a problem. And then secondly, reaching out to God and asking for his help to assist us to build contentment and to root out this discontented desire. And then thirdly, the idea of clinging to God's promises, of his commitment to care and provide everything that we need.
He talks about the idea of actions, of turning away from actions that promote or foster that continued tendency to crave. And so he says, if it's an item, stop, uh, stop uh, browsing uh, for the best price on that item. And if it's a person, uh, a relationship that's somehow causing us to be obsessed, then stop stalking them on Facebook and other social media directions. And then lastly, be thanking God for the good that he gives to us. So as we've journeyed briefly through covetousness today and obsessive desire, what is God doing in your heart? Has he affirmed you in his working, what he's been doing? Are there areas of concern, cautions, that he's raising for you? Or are there clear areas of danger, of error, that he is pointing out to you? In recent days, I've been ministered to by the song by Sarah Reeves, Just Want You. For those of you who know the song, can you complete the line? I don't want it if... For those of you who don't know the song, I don't want it if you're not in it. I just want you. I don't want it if you're not in it. I just want you. And that's the work that God is committed to doing in our hearts. And so an encouragement for us to respond, to make that our experience as we walk with him. And as we do so, we will experience the return of the sons and daughters to the fullness of God. As the worship team comes, let me pray for us. Master, we recognize that this may be an acceptable sin to others, but it is not to you. It deeply grieves you, and it deeply wounds our lives, our hearts, our relationships. And Master, we ask that you will work. We thank you for your commitment. Lord, we ask that you build within us a commitment to allow you to work, to mold our dreams, our desires, our wants, and to delight you. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you, and thanks for listening.